0: Sorry. In the, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them into his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them.
1: Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have invited us into this place today to sit under your teaching, to sit under the scriptures, to hear what you would say to your church today. And God, as we approach this text, I ask that your covering of grace, your mercy, and your compassion, Lord, your love and your steadfast faithfulness to your church, would rest in, not just in these four walls, God, but in our minds and in our hearts, our relationships. God, I pray that you would use this time, that you would carefully uh, take your word and apply it to each of our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. There is no relationship in the human realm that has potential for such great joy and also great sorrow than marriage. And given the countless books that have been written on the subject, there may be no other topic in all of Scripture that has been as thoroughly addressed as, the, uh, as marriage has been aside from the cross itself. And so for some of us, This conversation may appear merely theoretical or maybe you're not planning on entering into a marriage anytime soon, but for many it is deeply personal, it is practical, and for many in this room, it is an incredibly painful subject. And so as a community committed to loving one another well, it is crucial that we understand God's heart, not only for marriage— but also for married people, that we would understand God's heart for married people and those suffering within broken marriages or even trying to survive divorce. But there's a greater significance to this conversation than just learning to love one another well because in this topic of marriage, we actually see something about the heart of God that will transform the way we relate to him and to his covenant community regardless of our marital status. You see, in our text, the Pharisees come to Jesus in order to test him. They believe that they have devised a question that Jesus cannot answer without getting himself into trouble. They've set a trap for him. You see, there were... Two, there was a debate going on in the Jewish world at that time regarding marriage and divorce. And there was two schools of thought led by two different rabbis. The school of Shammai taught that divorce was never an option ever, no matter what. While the school of Hillel taught that a man could could divorce his wife for just about any reason, including burning dinner. No joke, it's literally written that if she burned dinner and he was displeased with her, he could send her away. They could divorce for any reason. And so the Pharisees come to Jesus, they want to know what camp is Jesus in because if they can get him to, assign, uh, to, to align with one camp or the other, they could incite the other camp against him. But there's another trap that they set. You see, John the Baptist who we read about a few chapters ago, was beheaded by Herod for his stance against the legality of Herod's marriage to his brother's ex-wife Herodias on the grounds that her divorce was unlawful. So he stood against and pronounced that that was not okay and was beheaded for it. So if the Pharisees can get Jesus to do the same, not only can they incite Half of the Jewish people against Jesus. They can incite Herod to come against Jesus. They have set a trap for him. And so their motives are sinister. The Pharisees' intentions in coming to Jesus in this matter is evil. And so many people. Many people who have, have had difficulty in their marriages or many people who have been grieving uh, and, and trying to survive divorce, they have often come to Jesus for counsel. They've come to his word for, for, for comfort and they open up Mark chapter 10 and they've often found Jesus' words in this text to be cold and harsh and a bit distant Maybe that's your experience. Maybe that's your story. Maybe you've come to Scripture seeking comfort in your marriage or through your divorce, and you've come to this, and you've found just cold, distant words. And what you need to understand is that Jesus here in this text is not addressing your situation. He's not answering your question. See, if his words have seemed harsh or lacked compassion, it's because he's responding to the Pharisees who are trying to manipulate him. The only, they only want to know where Jesus stands on the issue so that they can use it against him. And Jesus comes to them and he says, you're asking the wrong question." Rather than asking, when is divorce okay, we need to be asking, what is marriage for? It's not about when divorce is permissible. It's about the heart of marriage. It's about the covenant ideal. See, marriage is a covenant. It's not like any other relationship in the world. See, many people think that they meet someone They get to know them. They're attracted to them. And so they start getting to know each other with coffee dates. It always starts at coffee. Every relationship begins at coffee. And so you're getting to know each other. You're dating each other. And then you decide you're going to have the DTR, right? You got to define the relationship. And so the next step of the relationship is a really awkward conversation where you decide to be boyfriend and girlfriend. Funny story for another time, I had to convince my wife that she was my girlfriend rather than asking her to be my girlfriend. And so we you had the DTR, and, and so then you're dating someone, and now we're exclusive. We've, like, sworn off all the other people, and we're just, like, focusing time on on each other, and so you get to the point in the relationship where you're like, this is pretty good. This is, like, this could be something, and then you start seriously dating, Right? That's a term that someone has has used before. Like, well, we're more than dating, we're seriously dating. And were you not serious about it before? Awesome. I'm glad that you're serious about it this time. And then you start asking the questions, having the conversations, allowing the difficult topics to come up so that you can decide if this is someone that you can spend the rest of your life with. And if it is, then you get engaged. And then many people think that marriage is just the next stop on the relationship train. And it's not. See, marriage is a completely different kind of relationship. It's a completely different kind of relationship. Flying a plane is not the next step after learning to drive a car. It's a completely different kind of vehicle. And so a covenant is a completely different thing than anything else we're used to. The closest thing we have in our world to a covenant is a contract, And even a contract doesn't do justice for what marriage is. See, a contract is designed to protect two individuals. See, if if we go into a contract with one another, and I don't uphold my end of the bargain because I'm shady, you are free from your obligation to that contract. Because I broke my end of the deal, you are free from your end of the deal. But that's not so with a covenant. A covenant is not designed to protect two individuals. A covenant is designed to protect one union. And so entering into a covenant means that no matter what comes, the two people involved in the union are committed to pursuing unity. And so this covenant, and it establishes and it promotes oneness. See marriage is about oneness it's about the two becoming one flesh Many want to reduce this oneness to the expression of physical intimacy, but it is so much more than that. It includes every aspect of life as husband and wife. It includes every aspect of life with our spouses. There's emotional oneness. There's financial oneness. It's oneness in in time and space. It applies to everything. And so this oneness may be a result of the wedding ceremony, but it's expressed through both people when they're committed to loving and serving one another self-sacrificially. See, oneness happens as two people lay down their lives, lay down their right to pursue their own good, and choose to pursue the good of the other person. And when two people are laying down their lives, sacrificing their rights, sacrificing their needs for the needs of the other person, then both receive what they need and yet neither one is taking it at the expense of the other. It's oneness and it's beautiful Wounds in marriage come when the individuals in the one flesh union live for themselves at the expense of the other person, whether that expense is intended or unintended. And so divorce is the attempt to undo the one flesh union. And it's brutal and it's painful because marriage is intended to be permanent covenants are intended to be permanent. Jesus says that the two have become one flesh, literally one life. There's a walnut orchard uh, that I used to drive past all the time growing up in Lompoc, and I always thought it was interesting that at the base of these walnut trees, there is a dark brown barky stump and then suddenly the tree would become smooth and white throughout the rest of the tree. And as a child, I learned that there are two kinds of walnut trees. There is a black walnut tree, which grows better in this part of the world than the white walnut trees do. And then there's, there's a white walnut tree. Uh, and the walnuts from the white walnut tree taste better. They're, they're more desirable. And so what walnut ranchers do in this part of the world is they plant black walnut trees and then when the roots have the opportunity to go down deep, they graft into the black walnut tree a white walnut tree. And so the two species of tree are growing together and it's a beautiful thing. The, the, the roots of one support the fruit of the other. It's, it, it's, it's genius. It's brilliant. Scientists are wonderful. And so these two trees have become one life. And after growing together like this for some time, it would absolutely destroy both of the trees to try to undo what has become one. And so the Pharisees are here. They want to know, what will allow me out of my marriage What will allow me out? And Jesus wants to remind them not what will allow them out, but what and rather who has established the marriage. And he says, since God has made the two one, let not man separate what God has joined together. So then what does all this mean? What does this mean for marriage and divorce and remarriage in the church? See, Jesus doesn't fit nicely into the camp of Shammai or Hillel. While Jesus promotes the permanence of marriage because of the sacredness of God's design, he also honors the concession of of divorce given by Moses because of the sin that Jesus calls hardness of heart. So Jesus upholds the sanctity and the sacredness of marriage. And at the same time, along with Moses, he understands the reality of divorce and agrees with the concession provided by Moses because of hardness of heart. Tim Keller wrote concerning this, Sometimes betrayal and cruelty can damage the fabric of a marriage so that its continuance would be a greater evil than divorce. All this is implied by the idea that God, through Moses, granted divorce against his ideal design as a merciful adjustment to our sinful condition. And so while Moses and Jesus uphold the permanence of marriage, they also assume the reality of divorce because of sin and so provide a concession. If a spouse is intent on leaving because their hearts are hard toward God and toward their spouse and the marriage, God does not further burden the one being abandoned. But this concession that Moses gives began to be abused by the majority of the Jewish world at the time who believed that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. Mind you, women were not allowed to initiate divorce in first century Jewish culture. And so even what Jesus does here by providing not only a concession for divorce but then saying that if a woman were to uh, divorce her spouse, he actually provides the opportunity for women to be treated equally in this culture. They believed that they, they could divorce for any reason and it gets, it was getting abused and it gets abused today as well. So, that many people assume today that if a marriage doesn't work out, you can just part ways, peace out, and go your own way. And it undermines God's original intentions for marriage. And so when his disciples ask him to explain this more, he says that anyone who does divorce their spouse and remarries another person commits adultery. Just like the previous passage from last week where Jesus talks about cutting off your hand and gouging out your eye if it causes you to sin, Jesus is also using extreme language in order to make a point because the same hardness of heart that results in turning away from your spouse and embracing another is the same hard-heartedness that causes somebody to turn away from their spouse, divorcing them, and remarrying another. And so Jesus says if the intention is to turn away from the spouse that God has made you one with in order to pursue another, whether that person is immediate and and, and real or future and hypothetical. If that is your desire, if that is your intention, it is coming from the same hard heart that produces adultery. And so Jesus is saying that the Pharisees, in asking their question, are attempting to justify an adulterous heart. Now, this has caused many in the church to conclude that divorce is never an option and that it's always a sin all the time and any remarriage after divorce is adultery. But I think that's the wrong conclusion for several reasons. First, we need to take context into account. Context is key. And so Mark is not attempting to summarize all of Jesus' teachings on divorce and on marriage. He's answering those who are trying to trap him. Again, they're trying to manipulate him and he's not gonna play their game. And so he responds with God's intentions for marriage, not the ways that we should always respond in, 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 with, in difficulty in, in marriage. I imagine that Jesus' response would be significantly different if he were being asked this question by the wives or the ex wives of these Pharisees. Think of every time Jesus uh, uh, comes with compassion and grace to people who are seeking compassion and grace. Think of the way he speaks to the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 the love and the grace and the compassion that he extends. Think of the woman from John chapter four, the Samaritan woman at the well, who had had five husbands, and the man that she was currently with was not her husband, and the compassion and the grace and the love and the intentionality with which Jesus pursued her heart is beautiful. That is not the the, the heart of the people coming to him. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to manipulate him, and Jesus isn't going to go for it but he is always gracious. He is always compassionate to those who seek grace and compassion, but to those who continue to seek justification for their sinful actions and attitudes, he has very, very little patience for. Second, because of the context, it seems that Jesus is talking generally about the idea that someone could divorce their spouse for any reason. He's not just talking about divorce and remarriage generally. He's talking specifically about the concept of being uh, 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 legally allowed to abandon your spouse for any reason. To divorce without appropriate grounds and to remarry, Jesus says, is to indulge in adultery. Third, this isn't the only teaching of Jesus on the subject. In Matthew, Jesus adds an exception. Matthew 19, 9. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except... For sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. So, Jesus rejects the idea that you can divorce for any reason, but also says that there are certain severe violations of the marriage covenant. And in these cases, when there is no prospect of repentance or restoration or healing, then divorce is permitted. There is something that breaks the union of marriage. And Jesus in Matthew says that it is adultery. But even when there has been adultery, divorce is never the goal. Divorce is never commanded in Scripture. There's never a sin so great in a marriage that God commands divorce. God is a God of reconciliation, and reconciliation and restoration is always possible with Him. Fourth, this isn't the only section in the New Testament that deals with the subject of marriage and divorce. In the case of 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul includes abandonment as grounds for divorce, a willful desertion by an unbeliever. Uh, And and with this, many people, including myself, include um, abuse in this concept of of abandonment, emotionally abandoning and physically abandoning. Uh, attacking someone that you have sworn to love and to cherish and to protect. 1 Corinthians 7.15 says, But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in any such circumstance. See, there are actions that so thoroughly break the marriage vows that the Apostle Paul says the brother or sister is not bound. So the conclusion that that divorce is never an option, always a sin, and any remarriage is considered adultery does not stand the test of the whole council of Scripture. And so in summary, there are three views on marriage, divorce, and remarriage in the church. The first view is that divorce is never an option and always a sin. Second is that in certain cases, it is allowed but then remarriage is not allowed. And the third view is that there are some biblical grounds for divorce, though it is a last resort and should be avoided at all costs. But if those criteria meet, if there is such an offense to the marriage covenant, if there's been such a violation and repentance and restoration is not possible, then that person is free to remarry. This third view is our view as a church. At Reality Carpenteria, that there are some biblical reasons for divorce, although it is a last resort and should be avoided at all costs, and yet if that is the case, the person is free to remarry. But I want to provide a caution. Because if you approach marriage with the justification for divorce in your back pocket and the willingness to use those justifications, you will almost certainly find the opportunity. It is better to approach marriage with the intention that divorce is never an option than to come in justifying it that if it doesn't work out, I can always leave. Because divorce is never the goal. God is a God of reconciliation and restoration and even the most difficult marriages are not beyond hope if both people are committed to Jesus and committed to each other and committed to the marriage. So we also need to recognize that no two situations are alike. No two situations are identical. Uh, Statistically speaking, probably every single person in this room has been affected by this topic in some regard, whether as a child experiencing the divorce of parents or grandparents or relatives or in your own life and in your own marriages, and fighting for, for your marriage, and, and trying to survive and, and endure faithfully a difficult marriage, or trying to recover from divorce. We are not untouched by this concept, but no two situations are alike. And so your experience is unique. Your experience is important. And so understanding the way forward for you or understanding how to think back on what you've experienced takes incredible wisdom and counsel. And so please don't go it alone. Don't face this alone. Don't make these decisions alone. Like everything in life, we face it together as the body of Christ with the counsel of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, the leaders of the church, and those that love us and support us and will be there for us, even if the worst may come. So pursue counsel Working through your own experience is going to require an honest assessment of your situation and what the scriptures say regarding the situation. And so this means that there are three things that we need as a community as we pursue godly marriages. First, church, we need courage. We need courage to do this well. It's going to take courage for many of us to be honest about our lives to be honest about what we've experienced, to be honest about what we've endured, what we've done, what we've agreed to, what we have denied. It's going to be take courage to be honest about our situations and what scripture says. See, so many people fear receiving a medical diagnosis, a a difficult medical diagnosis from a doctor. And so they refuse to go and see a doctor and just hope that it's all going to go away. But when it doesn't, and then they finally go in and see a doctor, often it's too late. And so for you, what, what you need is courage to face it today, to face it together. To look into it honestly, to search the scriptures and to seek wisdom for your situation. We need courage to take our marriage and the scriptures seriously before the damage becomes irreparable. We need to do it. We need to look into it. It's going to take courage to acknowledge that many reasons given for divorce in our culture and in the church go against what Scripture teaches on the subject. The number one justification in our culture for divorce is I deserve to be happy. I deserve to be happy, but this implies that we're actually worthy of something. Scripture says that any any good thing is a gift, We're not owed anything. It also implies that we believe a spouse can make us happy. That idea that I deserve to be happy implies that we believe a spouse can make us happy. And while there's opportunity for incredible joy, incredible happiness in marriage, if we make our spouse the source of our happiness, then we also give them the power to destroy our happiness. We make them God. We make our spouses to be gods in our lives. And and though a spouse can be a husband, a wife can be a beautiful, incredible gift from God, husbands and wives make terrible gods. They will always let you down if every hope and dream in your life you intend to be fulfilled by that person. They make terrible, terrible gods. And so we need courage to be honest about what the scripture is saying concerning our situations. But we also need to be willing to experience conviction. If we are in the wrong, Or if we've been mistreating our spouse either by breaking the marriage vows or by crushing them under the weight of making them our God. We need to receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit that turns our hearts from other things and turns it back on to God. But the conviction that we need to receive is not always just being convinced of things that we're doing that are wrong. We also need conviction to pursue the things that are good. Many today need to lay aside what is permissible for the sake of what is intended. Not even, just take that, take that outside of the concept of marriage and into our lives. Many of us need to lay aside the things that are permissible to pursue the things that God intended. And so there are lots of things that are not necessarily sin, But are not helpful for marriage. And to pursue them is to operate like a Pharisee. The Pharisees just want to know how far they can go before they fall off their legal obedience. If obeying God is this dartboard, they're asking Jesus, how far to the edges can I stray and still be okay? Okay. And Jesus isn't gonna play that game. He says, you're asking the wrong question. You need to throw at the target. You need to throw at the bullseye. This is where you were intended to hit. It's not about how far away from that you can get. We need to lay aside what is permissible and to pursue what is intended. And so Jesus gives them the bullseye, the beauty and the purpose of marriage. So we need courage. We need conviction. And then church, this goes for everyone, we need compassion. We absolutely need compassion. Jesus gives compassion to the wounded heart. Those who have been hurt, those who are broken, those who are experiencing a lack of courage, those who who are, are, are experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and and not sure where to go from here, not sure what, what life looks like now from here. Jesus comes and he brings compassion to the wounded heart. Sadly, many people feel condemned in their divorce. Maybe you're here today and you're feeling condemned you're feeling like God has cast you off, that you can never pursue biblical faithfulness in this area or in the body of Christ again. You feel that the enemy has come against you, that, that, that you are just relegated to, to a second class Christian in the church. Many people, when they hear that scripture teaches that God hates divorce, what they hear is God hates me. And that's not the case. God hates divorce because he loves you. God hates divorce because he hates what divorce does to people. He hates what it does to families. And because he hates divorce and the pain that it causes, he will provide the power and the comfort to pursue reconciliation and redemption should a husband and wife pursue Jesus together. And so as a church, if your marriage is in shambles, I want to ask you, one, don't go it alone. You need courage. You need to be convinced of the the right way to move forward. But you need to be embraced by the love and compassion of Jesus so that you can do all that needs to be done to seek repair. And as a church, if you know someone whose marriage is in shambles, I want you to ask, I wanna ask you to bring the compassion, bring the love and the presence of Jesus into that person's life, to love them despite of all of the, the, the theological conversations you can have about it. You have the opportunity to manifest the presence of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit into that person's life by loving them, by being present with them, by never leaving them or forsaking them. You can be with them. I've personally seen some of the most miraculous works of God's grace, the most powerful working of His Holy Spirit to redeem people through some of the most disastrous marriages. There are testimonies in this church of beautiful, beautiful redemption. But maybe you're on the other side of this and you th- you're thinking it's too late right you did not go about it in this way what you need to know and be convinced of and have the courage to receive is the compassion of Jesus that says wrongful divorce is not the unforgivable sin wrongful divorce is not unforgivable by any means if you trust in Jesus you're forgiven period If you trust in Jesus, you're forgiven, regardless of what restoration is possible or not possible. And so we acknowledge our wrong, and when possible, we seek restoration. Scripture teaches, yes, that God hates divorce, but surprisingly, God describes himself in Scripture as a divorced person. God's experiences of his people continually turning away from him throughout the scriptures, continually abandoning the God of Israel to pursue foreign gods is described throughout scripture as spiritual adultery because God has given himself to his people in covenant and he has promised to preserve that unity, not to protect himself from us, but to protect the union with us. And so God has given himself to us in covenant. It's a binding relationship where we are invited into his life and where we can have confidence that he will never leave us or forsake us. This is why marriage is so important. It reflects God's commitment to us. It reflects God's relationship to his people. People should see the way, God, uh, the way we love one another in our marriages and say, this is what God is like. This is the way God loves his people. This is the way God forgives his people. This is the way God serves his people. This is the way God lays his life down for his people. People should look at our marriages and say, this is the way that Jesus loves the body of Christ. Marriage reflects God's commitment to us, and yet the people of Israel abandoned him. They left him, and so Jeremiah 3, verses 7 and 8 say, I thought after she, speaking of Israel, has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. God knows the pain. He knows the hurt. He knows the heartbreak of loving someone so desperately and to have them turn away from him. He knows the heartbreak of having to concede. I will not force you to be with me. And if you are going to abandon me, I'm going to concede to send you away, to give that decree of divorce. God's own people did this to him time and time again throughout the scriptures. He knows the pain, he knows the hurt, and yet he pursues reconciliation, he pursues restoration. Whether reconciliation is possible or not with others, it is always possible with God. It is always possible with him. If you trust him, you are forgiven and accepted as a dearly loved child. This is the heart of God. And this is why this conversation on divorce is immediately followed by Jesus' heart toward children. Not only because of the connection between marriage and family, but because children are representatives of what it means to be completely dependent. To be completely dependent on their parents. And so rather than trying to justify our actions, rather than trying to to prove ourselves as acceptable as the Pharisees are doing, what we need is to receive mercy. What we need is to receive reconciliation. What we need is to receive the restoration that comes through faith in Jesus. We need to receive the kingdom as little children, as children receiving grace from their parents, blessing from their parents, not because they've done everything right, but because they are, they are, they're theirs. They belong to them. And so the Pharisees will not receive the kingdom values in Jesus' teaching on divorce because they're unwilling to receive the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. They still want to achieve their own righteousness. They're still trying to achieve their own status and many of us are still trying to achieve our own self-righteousness. Not only pointing to the right things in our lives, but trying to downplay and justifying the questionable things in our lives. And it's an attempt to force God into accepting us. We're trying to make ourselves worthy. We're trying to prove that we are acceptable by pointing to the good things and trying to hide away the bad things. But doing so misses the fact that God chooses to love us, that God has chosen to love you, that he's not blind to the stuff in your life. He's not blind to the things that are wrong. He's not blind to your difficult marriages. He's not blind to divorce. He's not blind to the hurt, the shame, the pain that you have received or the pain that you have inflicted. He is not blind to that and yet he chooses to love you. Not because you're shiny and and clean and, and holy but while you were still sinning against him, he chose to love you. While we were still sinners Christ died for us. He makes us new. He cleanses us he died for us and covenants himself to us through faith in his death and resurrection the church becomes the bride of christ the church becomes united to jesus in this covenant of marriage In this covenant that he is absolutely committed to, the reason that we can be faithful and committed people in all of our relationships, not just our marriage relationships, but our friendships, our church relationships, our church family, our our relationship with Jesus is because Jesus is faithful and committed to us. Romans 8 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution He doesn't love us because we are holy and righteous. He loves us when we are in shambles. He loves us when we're broken, covered in our filth. He loves us and in uniting himself to us, he makes us one with him by grace. No matter what it is. It's that picture of Jesus cleansing the leper earlier in Mark when Jesus touches him. And instead of contracting the leprosy from the leper, the leper contracted the cleanness of Jesus. Whatever situation you're in, whatever you have brought into the marriage or taken out of the marriage, whatever uncleanness is in your life, whatever it is, If you come to Jesus and the Spirit unites you to Christ through faith, his cleanness washes over you and you have been pronounced clean. You are free, set free and cleansed and loved in the name of Jesus. He loves us though we're broken. He loves us though we're sinful, but he makes a way for us to be healed. He makes a way for us to be reconciled and restored to him. No matter how painful or impossible it may seem, all things are possible with God. And so church, we need to trust him today. If you're here and you're broken, whether it's regarding marriage or some other difficult thing in life, trust him today in marriage, in life, in all things, and receive healing. He brings restoration. He brings healing. He brings love and compassion. He will give you the courage that you need. He will bring the conviction to pursue the good things that he desires for you. And he will bring compassion into your life when you fail. Trust in Jesus today and receive healing, receive forgiveness, receive eternal life, and receive the Holy Spirit of God who unites us to Jesus in his covenant love. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you never stop pursuing your bride. Jesus, thank you that when we continue to turn away from you, either, either for a, for a moment, or for a month, or from years, maybe there are people here who've who have followed you at some point in their life and have and have turned away, and it, and it's been it's been a long time. It's been a long time since they've actively followed you. God, we believe the truth that you have never stopped pursuing them. And if they're here today, that's an evidence that you have just been consistently, faithfully, lovingly, compassionately pursuing your bride. Not shouting at them, you better come back. But please, I'm right here. I've never left you. Turn and receive healing. Receive love. Receive the compassion that you need. Holy Spirit, thank you that you never stop pursuing us. You never stop leading us into the good and beautiful things you desire for your bride. God, I pray that we in this time would simply open our hands as little children receiving not only the kingdom but receiving the values of the kingdom, to live as kingdom people in this world. God, I pray if there's anyone who's still experiencing fear, condemnation because of what they've encountered in marriage, pray that in the name of Jesus, you would set them free to receive your love and your grace and your healing. Thank you that you never stop pursuing us, Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name.